Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the world, and getting in touch with our own humanity. So, I owe all of you kind and gentle people an apology. The month of May was insanity defined for us here. Hannah started nursery school, and nobody told me that suddenly, as soon as your kid starts daycare or nursery school, every germ in the world will attach itself to her hands and just come into your house. We have all been passing around bugs, and then the plumbing in our house went out because of a leak in a pipe under the driveway, and then in an event that kind of epitomized what the past month has been like, on Friday, Hannah was fighting her nap and doing gymnastics on the bed the way many almost three-year-olds do, and when she came up with a, from a somersault with me trying to stop it, her head collided with my eye, and now I have a black eye and an insane headache. Anyway, you didn't need to hear the entire story of my parenting misadventures, but all that is to say that I have neglected this podcast, and I apologize. So, onwards. This month, I'm finally going to finish out this third episode on the theater, which has been long promised, and then another interview with Tudor Times about their person of the month, and then we will be moving onwards to Rebellions. So let's get started. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And the Agora Podcast of the Month, which you should definitely check out, is The History of China by Chris. Check it out, subscribe, and learn more at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. Also, if you like this podcast, why not sign up for my newsletter at the website englandcast.com? It's totally free. I'll never spam you. And newsletter subscribers receive an extra mini cast each month, as well as discounts on my books and giveaways and other fun things. In this month's newsletter, I'll have a coupon for 50% off the audio version of my light, fun, perfect for the beach novel, Sideways and Backwards, a novel of time travel and self-discovery, which currently has 4.8 out of 5 stars on Amazon. And by the way, Thank you, Ian, for that totally thoughtful review, which made me squeal with delight. All right. This episode, like I said, I'm wrapping up the trilogy on the theater by talking about the other working playwrights and actors, the other famous people in Elizabethan England, because it wasn't all just Shakespeare. 
If you missed the other two episodes, you should go back and listen. The first was on the history of the theater in general, leading up to the magic of Elizabethan drama. And the second was on Shakespeare himself. So now we're doing the other guys, because there actually were other playwrights and actors in England besides Shakespeare in the late 16th century. Because I'm going to cover quite a few of them, like five, this is meant to be an introduction rather than any kind of in-depth look. If something here sparks your interest, I have a page on the website with the show notes, including book recommendations, so that you can read further about all of these wonderful characters. The first one I'm going to talk about is Christopher Marlowe, who, were it not for his early death, may have been the most famous Elizabethan playwright, full stop. He was born the same year as Shakespeare, but would have a very different education and early life than Shakespeare. He was born two months before Shakespeare in 1564 in Canterbury to a shoemaker. He went to the King's School in Canterbury, and then he received a scholarship to Corpus Christi College in Cambridge, where he received his BA in 1584. And then things get interesting. There was a rumor that he was going to go to the English College in Rem, which taught the Roman Catholic priests, and the university in Cambridge was hesitant about giving him his master's degree. And then something very mysterious happened. He received his degree on schedule, thanks to an intervention from the Privy Council on his behalf, commending him for his faithful dealing and good service to the Queen. The nature of Marlowe's service was not specified, but of course this letter has led to many conspiracy theories, particularly the notion that Marlowe was a secret agent working for Francis Walsingham's intelligence service. No direct evidence supports this theory, although the council's letter is evidence that Marlowe had served the government in some kind of secret capacity. So as a playwright, one of his first plays performed in London was Tamburlaine the Great, and this was one of his most famous plays. He only wrote a handful of plays, and they were all brilliant. So this was about a conqueror, Tamburlaine, and he rose from a shepherd to become a warlord. He only wrote a handful of other plays, like I said, but they were among the first to use blank verse in English, which was unrhymed iambic pentameter. He wrote history plays, including one about Edward II, who had been deposed thanks to his overreaching support of several nobles, and it would later influence Shakespeare's Richard II. So Edward II influenced Richard II. He also wrote one called The Jew of Malta, which is like a total direct predecessor to The Merchant of Venice. Dr. Faustus was one of the most notable plays to have been performed up until this time, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. The theater, just imagine, the theater was still quite new, and there were still people like the Puritans were rallying to get it shut down because of how immoral they thought it was. And here Marlowe writes this play and performs this play in which the lead character summons the devil. And this was like a big freaking deal. And it was really frightening to people to watch and to think about, to even see this portrayed was really, really scary for people um, and exciting as well. And, you know, really brought up a lot of emotions. So Marlowe died when he was still a young man, of course. So who knows what he could have gone on to, to do? Well, there's a lot of suspicion around his death as well as the rest of his life. 
So when he died, he was only 29 and he was killed in a bar fight. And it supposedly stemmed from a fight over the bill. That would have been clear enough. But less than two weeks before, he had been arrested for blasphemy and was brought before the Privy Council for questioning, although apparently the council wasn't in session that day. So he was ordered to come back each day until it was cleared, and 10 days later, he was stabbed. The mystery over whether this was connected to the arrest is still unsolved, and it's led to, again, a lot of conspiracy theories. There are some people who believe that Marlowe's death was a fake, and he came back to write plays as Shakespeare. Basically, conspiracy theories abound. It doesn't really matter, though. In the end, we have this handful of amazing plays that he wrote, which influenced playwrights for generation and are among the richest and the most cutting edge of the time. So the next one I'm going to talk about is Ben Jonson. Ben Jonson was another kind of bad boy, quite literally, though he was also equally brilliant and he lived for a long time. So there's a lot of plays. He was really prolific and we have a lot of information about him. He was born in 1572. His father had died two months before he was born. And two years after he was born, his mother remarried a master bricklayer. He went to school at the Westminster School, where he was taught by the famous antiquarian William Camden. And he wanted to continue and go to Cambridge. But his stepfather forced him to become an apprentice. He was really, really unhappy as a bricklayer. And so he ran away to the army in the Netherlands. Because that's what I would do if I was unhappy in my job. I would join the army and go fight a war in the Netherlands, said nobody ever except Ben Johnson. But it suited him because he's famous for killing an enemy soldier in single combat. Then he took the guy's weapons as trophies. And then he returns to England to work as an actor and a playwright. One of his earliest acting gigs was as Geronimo in the Spanish tragedy by Thomas Kidd, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it was the first revenge tragedy in English literature. By 1597, he was a regular actor, but he actually wasn't really successful as an actor. He was taken off the stage and suddenly he became employed by the Admiral's men as a writer, and he began writing his own original plays. And in 1598, he was mentioned as one of the best playwrights for tragedy. Some of these, well, all of these early tragedies don't survive, though. He had another career mishap when, in 1597, a play he co-wrote with Thomas Nash, The Isle of Dogs, was suppressed after it offended the Queen. It was supposedly based on life at court. Johnson and Nash were both arrested and thrown into jail, charged with lewd and mutinous behavior. Nash escaped to Great Yarmouth, but two actors in the play were also imprisoned. So people were really ticked off about this. We don't have a copy of this play, which is really a shame because I would love to read that. And you can only imagine how sensational it must have been to have brought down such wrath from the Queen. A year later, Johnson was back in prison in Newgate. He like wanted to make a tour of a rounds of all the prisons in London. This time, he was back in prison for killing Gabriel Spencer, who was one of the two actors who had previously been arrested for the play the year before. He killed the guy in a duel. So he pled guilty to the charge of manslaughter, and he was released by benefit of clergy. 
If you've never heard of benefit of clergy, this is a legal maneuver that goes back to the Middle Ages and beyond, where anyone who could read a particular verse from the Bible, often referred to as a neck verse, would be set free. So this dates back to the time, like I said, when clergy were the vast majority of people who could read. So somebody would say, well, you can't kill me because I'm a clergy and I need to be tried in ecclesiastical courts or in the religious courts. And so then they would say, okay, we'll prove that you're clergymen and do that by reading this verse. And so then they'd read the verse and they'd prove they were clergymen. And so what people would do is then brand them and send them on their merry way. So Johnson pled this and he said, you know, benefit of clergy. And so he forfeited his goods and he was branded on his left thumb. One notable event from his time in prison, though, was that he converted to Catholicism, which is likely through the influence of a fellow prisoner, Father Thomas Wright, a Jesuit priest. In 1598, Johnson produced his first great success, Every Man in His Humor. William Shakespeare was actually among the first actors to be cast, and Johnson followed this in 1599 with Every Man Out of His Humor, an attempt to imitate Aristophanes. At the beginning of the reign of James I, in 1603, Johnson joined the other poets and playwrights in welcoming the new king, and he quickly adapted to the additional demand for masks and entertainments and pageantry introduced with this new reign. He also enjoyed the patronage of aristocrats, such as Elizabeth Sidney, who was the daughter of Sir Philip Sidney, and Lady Mary Roth. But he continued to have trouble with the authorities. He just couldn't stay out of trouble. In the second week of October 1605, he was present at a supper party attended by most of the gunpowder plot conspirators. After the plot's discovery, he seems to have avoided further imprisonment because right away he volunteered everything he knew of the affair to the investigator Robert Cecil and the Privy Council. At the same time, Johnson was pursuing a more prestigious career, writing masks for James's court. So he wrote, the Satyr in 1603, the Mask of Blackness in 1605, those are two of about two dozen which he wrote for James or for Queen Anne. And on many of these projects, he collaborated with the very famous designer Inigo Jones. And Jones, one of his most famous works is the Banqueting Hall in Whitehall. It's a, a brilliant, um, he was a brilliant designer, but an architect. <laughs> But for example, Jones designed the scenery for Johnson's mask, Oberon, the fairy prince, which was performed at Whitehall on January 1st, 1611, in which Prince Henry, who is the eldest son of James I, appeared in the title role. And thanks to all of this new success, he stopped writing plays for the public theater. Something that he did in 1618 was he set out for his ancestral Scotland on foot. He spent over a year there, and he stayed with the Scottish poet William Drummond in April 1619, which was on the River Esk. Drummond recorded as much of Johnson's conversation as he could in his diary, and we have aspects recorded of Johnson's personality that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to see as well. So Johnson talked about his opinions and a whole lot of stuff. Drummond noted that he was a great lover and praiser of himself, 
a condemner and scorner of others. So he had a lot of self-confidence. In the 1620s, his productivity began to decline, but he still remained popular. His later plays aren't actually that good, but they're important because they show a side of Charles I's England that we don't normally see. One is The Staple of News, is a play that looks at the very nascent beginnings of English journalism. And then another one, The New Inn, was a complete failure, and it led Johnson to write a poem condemning his audience for not getting it, and he called it The Ode to Myself. So yeah, this really, this guy really didn't have any kind of like um, doubt about how awesome he was. He had a fairly famous rivalry with Shakespeare, and there are several recorded instances where Johnson made fun of Shakespeare, including one where he learned that Shakespeare never blotted or crossed out lines when he wrote. And supposedly Johnson responded, would that he had blotted a thousand. <laughs> that takes, takes some guts to say that about Shakespeare. Although in fairness to Johnson, it was he who said when Shakespeare died, he was not of an age, but for all time, which of course is one of the most famous um, rememberings of Shakespeare that we have. So now I'm going to move ahead to Thomas Kidd. This is going to be shorter, thanks to the fact that we just don't know that much about him. But he was super important. He was born in 1558. And he's important, if only because he's the author of the Spanish tragedy, which is one of the most important plays in the development of the Elizabethan drama. He was really famous in his own time. But then he fell into obscurity for like 200 years until 1773, when Thomas Hawkins, who was an early editor of the Spanish tragedy, discovered that Kidd was named as its author by Thomas Haywood in something he wrote called his Apology for Actors. In that book, he named Kidd as the author of the Spanish tragedy. So a hundred years later, at the end of the 19th century, scholars in Germany and England began to shed light on his life and his work, including the very controversial finding that he was probably the author of a Hamlet play, which predated Shakespeare's, which is now known as the Or Hamlet. So he went to school at a new school in London, the Merchant Taylor's School. He got a well-grounded education there. And there's no evidence, though, that he went on to any university. Evidence does suggest that in the 1580s, he became an important playwright. But like I said, very little is known about his activity. He was placed among the best for tragedy. And he's known as famous kid. And Ben Johnson mentions him in the same breath as Christopher Marlowe, with whom in London, kid at one point shared a room. So the Spanish tragedy was probably written in the mid to late 1580s. It's the first modern revenge tragedy, and it's one of the first tragedies ever written in English. The earliest surviving edition was printed in 1592. The full title was The Spanish Tragedy Containing the Lamentable End of Don Horatio and Bel Imperia with the Pitiful Death of the Old Geronimo. However, the play was usually known simply as Hieronimo after the protagonist. 
It was arguably the most popular play during the entire Elizabethan period. And it basically set the bar for plots, for character. And the success of the plays went all the way to Europe. Versions of the Spanish tragedy and his Hamlet were popular in Germany and the Netherlands for generation. And the influence of these plays on European drama was a big part of the reason for the interest in Kidd among the German scholars in the 19th century. On May 11, 1593, the Privy Council ordered the arrest of the authors of diverse lewd and mutinous libels, which had been posted around London. The next day, Kidd was among those arrested. He would later believe that he had been the victim of an informer. His lodgings were searched, and instead of evidence of the libels, instead, they found a tract that was described as a vile, heretical conceit denying the eternal deity of Jesus Christ found among the papers of Thomas Kidd, prisoner, which he affirmeth he had from Christopher Marley, who was Marlowe. It's believed that Kidd was brutally tortured to get this information. Kidd told authorities that the writings found in his possession belonged to Marlowe who was his former roommate. And Kidd accused his former roommate of being a blasphemous traitor, an atheist who believed that Jesus Christ was a homosexual. Marlowe was summoned by the Privy Council after these events, and of course that was this trigger that happened. And then two weeks later, he was killed mysteriously in Deptford over this reckoning of the bill in a bar. Who knows? Kidd was eventually released, but he wasn't accepted back into the service of his lord and patron. He believed he was under suspicion of atheism himself, and he wrote to people protesting his innocence. The last that we hear of him was a publication in early 1594. He talked about the bitter times and privy broken passions he had endured. And he died later that year. He was only 35. So it was a very sad life that both he and Marlowe led in the end. So now we're going to quickly look at a few other important people, namely Will Kemp and Richard Burbage. First, Burbage. Burbage was basically the first great actor of English theater. He was the most famous actor of the Globe Theater of his time and he was also a theater owner and entrepreneur. His father was a joiner who became an impresario in the early days of the theater. He also founded the first theater in the city, and Richard became a popular actor by his 20s. He was in all the various theatrical companies, the Admiral's Men, Lord Strange's Men, the Earl of Pembroke's Men, But most famously, he was the star of Shakespeare's theatrical company, The Lord Chamberlain's Men, which became the King's Men after James I ascended to the throne in 1603. He played the title role in the first performances of many plays, including Hamlet, Othello, Richard III, and King Lear. He was in great demand as well, so he was also in plays by other contemporary writers like Ben Jonson. He was a huge box office draw. 
of the hundreds of plays and thousands of roles for actors that date from 1580 to 1610, here's a statistic. There are only 20 or so roles that are longer than 800 lines. This was mostly due to the fact that plays were constantly in rotation. They wouldn't have a run on one play before starting another the way we do now. So they were constantly changing and rotating in and out. And so it'd be really hard to keep up with that many lines. Edward Allen was the first English actor to manage these roles. It was in Marlowe's Tamburlaine and the Jew of Malta that he did that. But the majority of these star roles, 13 of the 20, were acted by Burbage. He was the first Englishman to live a really kind of wealthy Hollywood-like life, living off of acting. He was earning income from being owning two playhouses, being the primary person involved with two playhouses, a sharer in the King's Men, a lead actor, and also, oh yes, he painted. So he had a lot of talents. He was born in 1568. Like I said, his father became very involved with the theater and introduced him to it at a young age. And when his father died in 1597, Richard and his brother Cuthbert stepped in to try to rescue the family's interests in two London theaters. They ended up tied up in all kinds of lawsuits. The Blackfriars Theater they kept, but they leased to a lawyer and impresario, Henry Evans, who used it for a troupe of child actors. The other one was simply called the theater. And this one is that famous story where it was dismantled when they couldn't resolve the terms of a new lease with the owner, Giles Allen. He was the land the landowner. And I talked about this in the episode about Shakespeare. It was when, in the middle of this dark night in December, when Allen was away celebrating the holidays, the theater troupe comes in and completely dismantles the theater. They claimed that their lease was for the land, but they owned the building itself. So they come in in the night, they take everything apart in one night, And they moved it to a new location on the south side of the Thames, and that would then become the Globe. Interestingly, Burbage was performing at the Globe on June 29th, 1613, when it caught fire and burned down. He survived, though. He he did die in 1619. Obviously, he's not still alive. He did die, eventually. But he did remain a huge draw, even when other younger actors came about. He was a box office draw for 35 years. He acted with the King's Men until his death in 1619. And his death had so much outpouring of grief that it actually threatened to overshadow the official mourning for the death of Queen Anne, which had happened just 10 days prior. Of the many elegies that followed his death, the most striking is the simply brief exit burbage. Our final character is Will Kemp. Will Kemp is the first very famous English comedic actor who likely played the great comic role Falstaff in Shakespeare's plays. He was also one of the actor shareholders in The Lord Chamberlain's Men, along with Shakespeare and Burbage. But a short time later, he actually left the group. They had some kind of a falling out, and he wound up dying in poverty within like five years. Not very much is known about him. Again, he was raised, supposedly it appears, in Kent. He first enters the record as a performer with Lester's men at Leicester House in May 1585. He then went to the Low Countries to take part in the war there and worked for Lester's nephew, Philip Sidney, delivering letters for him back to England. 
Sidney said that he sent letters home by way of a man he called Will, my Lord of Leicester's jesting player, and it's generally accepted that this was Kemp. After a brief return to England, he also then accompanied two other future Lord Chamberlain's men, George Bryan and Thomas Pope, to Elsinore, where he entertained Frederick II of Denmark. His whereabouts in the later 1580s are not known, but his fame as a performer was growing during this period, and that's indicated by Thomas Nash's An Almond for a Parrot. He dedicated this work to Kemp. And so there's a couple different title pages from the time period that dedicate books to Kemp or talk about Kemp and how good he is. And entries in the Stationer's Register indicate that three jigs, short comic plays, perhaps written by Kemp, were published between 1591 and 1595, and two of these have survived. He was one of Lord Strange's men by 1592, and that was along with Burbage and Shakespeare. He joined the Lord Chamberlain's men, and he remained in that company until early 1599, like I said, when a still unclear sequence of events removed him from the company. They had a fight of some sort. After his departure from the Chamberlain's men in early 1599, he continued to pursue his career as a performer. He did some publicity stunts. He Morris danced from London to Norwich, which was over 100 miles. And he did a couple things like that. But he suddenly became really obscure. He never really made it. He he tried to do another European tour. But by 1601, he was borrowing money from Philip Henslow. And the last undoubted mention of him occurs in Henslow's diary in late 1602. Parish records record the death of Kemp, comma, a man in St. Savior Southwark in late 1603. This is not necessarily the comedian, but it fits his departure from the record. In his time, Kemp was famous for his stage jigs and for his acting in regular drama. The jig was a kind of rustic cousin to the Commedia dell'arte, featured as many as five performers in a partially improvised song and dance routine. Jigs had plots, they were often quite bawdy, but the emphasis was on dancing and physical comedy. And as an actor, Kemp is associated with two roles, Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing and Peter in Romeo and Juliet. And from these hints, a list of Kemp's parts has been deduced, which, if conjectural, is not improbable. (laughs) He supposedly would have been Costart in Love's Labor's Lost, Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Lancelot Gabo in The Merchant of Venice, and Cobb in Ben Jonson's Every Man in His Humor. So that's a little bit about Will Kemp. Now, the book recommendation, which is Elizabethan Jacobean Drama, The Theater in Its Time, edited by Blakemore Evans. Remember to go to the website, englandcast.com, for the show notes to get a link to buy the book and to sign up for the newsletter. You can also get in touch with me with any comments, either on Facebook at facebook.com slash englandcast, or on Twitter at Tesco, T-E-Y-S as in Sam, K-O, or by texting the listener feedback line at 801-6-TESCO. 801-683-9756, I think it is. 6-TESCO. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. The next episode will be the interview with Tudor Times, like I said, on their Person of the Month. 
That'll come out in a couple of weeks. And then after that, we're going to move on to our little spell on rebellions. We'll be looking at the various rebellions that plagued our 16th century monarchs. And while I won't be able to hit them all in depth, we're going to talk about what led people to rebel at different times, how they were dealt with, and then look at some specific famous ones. Until then, have a great few weeks, and I will talk to you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.